Hello, Grand Divisions listeners. This is the week of November 12th. I'm Natalie Allison, and I'm here to tell you that we are not going to have our normal podcast today. Today, you're going to get to hear the podcast that Joel Ebert and I recorded about a month ago when we were leading a panel at the Southern Festival of Books here in Nashville. We interviewed a few authors. We talked to them about the state of politics, about bipartisanship, about Taylor Swift. We talked about everything, so you should listen to it. Uh, Those panelists were Mariah Cole. She is with the Urban League of Young Professionals of Middle Tennessee. We also spoke with Jennifer Cavanaugh. She wrote a book called Truth Decay, and another author, Arthur Lupia. He wrote a book called Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little. So after you listen to this, we're going to take a couple weeks off. Uh, From the podcast, we're going to gear up for season two. We're going to come back. We're going to focus on the legislature. We're going to focus on the new administration under Governor-elect Bill Lee and all the issues that are going to come up along the way. So as we we regroup, we prepare for the new season of this podcast, we ask that you just have some patience with us. You can send us emails. You can tweet at us. You can call us. You can send us all your great ideas on how to improve this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, my email address is inallison.com. N-A-L-L-I-S-O-N at Tennessean.com. You can find me on Twitter at Natalie underscore Allison. You can send Joel an email. He's Jebert, J-E-B-E-R-T at Tennessean.com. And he's on Twitter at Joel Ebert 29. So like, share, tweet about us, tell all your friends. We're looking forward to coming back and continuing Grand Divisions Hope you enjoy this podcast, and we will be back in a couple weeks. Next up, from the Southern Festival of Books in Nashville, it's an examination of the state of American politics. Um, My name is Joel Ebert. I'm a political reporter here in town at the Tennessean. Uh, We basically, Natalie and I are reporters that cover everything from state government, state politics, to the, the thing this year is the U.S. Senate race and the governor's race in our state. I don't know. If anybody's uh, you know, out of town, it's a very close race in the U.S. Senate. Uh, there's two candidates, Phil Bredesen, who is a, a former Democrat governor, running up against uh, Marsha Blackburn. She's a Republican who is a supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, so what we want to do this morning is basically f- facilitate a conversation about the state of politics today. Uh, we've got some great panelists here, so we're going to go down the line, but uh, we'll, we'll give everybody a brief intro. Hi, I'm Natalie Allison. I am also a state politics reporter at the Tennessean. Um, so we, we have a podcast called Grand Divisions. We put it out weekly, with the exception of recently, we've been doing a couple extra episodes during the weeks because we've had all of these debates lately. Uh, but what we do is we talk about politics and policy in Tennessee, and we try to make a point to talk to the people who are involved in that. Sometimes it's the politicians themselves, sometimes it's, it's analysts and other experts in the field, but we want to hear from people in Tennessee about how issues are affecting people. And we talk about our stories every week, and um, it's, it's a lot of fun, so you guys should check it out. But today, we're going to hear from these great panelists. Uh, first up, we have Mariah Cole. Mariah is the Director of Program Management for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at Meharry Medical College here in Nashville. She's also the vice president of the Urban League of Young Professionals of Middle Tennessee, which she's going to tell you all about. Uh, We have Jennifer Cavanaugh. She's the author of Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. 
she's also a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, and she is the associate director of the Strategy, Strategy Doctrine and Resources Program at their Arroyo Center. Uh, she researches U.S. political institutions, political communications, public opinion, and how that impacts U.S. foreign and domestic policy. We also have Arthur Lupia. He is the author of Uninformed, Why People Seem to Know So Little About Politics and What We Can Do About It. And Arthur is also from Michigan. He is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan. And he also is chair of the American Political Science Association Task Force on Improving Public Engagement. So we're going to ask each of these three panelists to tell us a little bit about their work. In the case of Arthur and Jennifer, we're going to ask them to talk about their books. Mariah, talk about what she's doing here in Tennessee um, with voter engagement. So let's start with Mariah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Yeah, so um, you mentioned that I was the vice president of the Urban League Young Professionals of Middle Tennessee, and the, the Urban League is a you know historical civil rights uh, organization, sort of different from the NAACP in that it provides direct services. Um, NAACP is usually associated with policy change. They do a lot in the legal field, whereas the Urban League does a lot uh, with direct services, providing you know job placement for people, um, health services, that kind of thing. Um, and what you didn't mention, but what I really do want to be sure to, to mention is that I'm a board member of the Equity Alliance, which is um, a new nonprofit. It's been around for almost two years now, and we work with African Americans and other people of color um, in getting them civically involved. And so for us, that means voter education, registration, voter turnout, and voter protection. Um, and it is groups like the Equity Alliance um, that have popped up in the last, you know, two or three years because we feel like this urge to get people more, you know, civically involved. And then there are groups like the Urban League who have for hundreds of years um, that now have, you know, a greater focus on, you know, voter turnout and, and getting people who have historically not been as, as involved in the voting process, you know, more involved and, and just sort of speaks to where we are now in, in our country um, and what people are really, really focusing on. Thank you. Yeah, we want to hear more about what you guys are doing to improve voter turnout. Jennifer? So truth decay is the term that we're using at RAND to refer to the diminishing role that facts, data, and analysis appear to be playing in our political and civil discourse and in the policymaking process. And RAND is um, focused on improving um, uh, policy analysis and policy decision making. That's its mission um, and its um, reason for being. So this is obviously a, a significant concern to us. Um, not only for its implications for what we do, but also for its implications for our democratic institutions. And so we define truth the case comprising four specific trends. First, an increasing disagreement about objective facts. Second, a blurring of the line between fact and opinion. Um, third, an increasing relative volume of opinion compared to fact. And finally, decreasing trust in institutions that used to be looked to as sources of factual information. And so what we uh, have increasingly is a situation in which people aren't sure what is a fact and what is not, and they're not really sure where to look to get that information. So in the book, we talk about some of the implications of that um, and the, the causes and the consequences. So when we're talking about causes, we talk about things like cognitive biases. And now cognitive biases are new, so some aspects of what we're calling truth decay are things that we've seen before. Um, but we also look at how changes in the information system, uh, the rise of the internet and social media, uh, changes in the way we consume information, uh, cable news, um, and the, the pressures that news organizations increasingly face to produce um, popular content. That's uh, true. 
um, <laughs> popular content that um, that attracts attention, and sometimes that those incentives to produce content that is um, popular and catchy and that attracts eyeballs may not be uh, the the detailed analysis that um, provides the most fact-based information to help inform voters so they can make those informed decisions when they go to the polls. Uh, and there are uh, aspects of truth decay that extend in other institutions as well. So if you think about our education system, the education system faces an increasing number of demands to teach students an increasing number of things, to take more tests, to provide care before and after schools. And at the same time, they're now being asked to train students for a really complex information environment. And they don't necessarily have the resources or the, um, the programming or the uh, support to teachers to get students to that point where they're able to navigate this complex information system. And all of this is happening in a context, um, our political context, of extreme polarization, which contributes to this and drives it, um, drives it further because there, it creates incentives for there to be these competing um, narratives, uh, which makes it really difficult for us to have meaningful conversations across, um, across partisan lines because both sides not only have their own opinions and their own perspectives, but increasingly their own facts. Um, and that's problematic if we're going to think about how we're going to tackle some of the really important fundamental challenges that the country faces. So the final chapter of the book lays out a research agenda, things that we still think we need to know about this problem um, in order to address it. And that includes things like understanding how much disinformation is out there. Um, can we diagnose the, uh, identify the key sources of that disinformation? Can we understand more about how cognitive biases affect decision making? Um, and what can we say about the way that polarization is changing in this country? And what can we, uh, how, what are some of the mechanisms that might help us to overcome it? So those are some of the topics that we're working on now to, um, to continue this project. Uh, the Truth Decay, book was not intended as a stopping point, but as a starting point. And this is an initiative that we're going to keep, uh, that we're going to continue for the foreseeable future. Great. Thank you. Arthur, can you tell us about why you decided to write Uninformed sure. and a little bit about the book? Okay. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me here. Um, I study how people make decisions when they don't know very much, which conveniently is always. Um, <laughs> If you think about you know, how much do you know when you're driving in traffic about the intentions and likely speed of the other car, like we think we know a lot, but really we make most of our decisions when driving based on whether a particular light is red or green and some sense of how far in front of us the, the other car is. There's all kinds of things we don't know and yet somehow we do it pretty well. Uh, we choose consumer products like the food we eat or cell phones based on tiny bits of information about how they were manufactured. If you actually, if you want to frighten yourself one day, think about where food actually comes from and how many trucks it's been in and who handled it and so forth. I don't want to give you nightmares, but the point is we make lots of decisions based on very little information. And so now we wander into the realm of politics and sometimes we like to establish this fiction. And the fiction is there's people like us who know everything and then there's the other idiots who don't know anything. Uh, and the fact is, when, when we look at most political issues, they're really important and, and they're really complicated. And so what I do is try and figure out how do people choose what to believe. And when we have critical information that can affect quality of life, how do we get it to people? So over the last 15 years, I've worked with a range of organizations really to try and help them improve how they communicate, mostly in the realm of science and medicine, trying to get my, the thing I care about most is quality of life and taking the best available information and getting it to people who can use it. So I, I spent a lot of time in Washington working with the National Academies of Science, the National Science Foundation.
Foundation. And this journey actually even took, I worked with the president of Columbia on how to resolve their peace process, right? So when we start to think about how people choose what information to believe, and how to build uh, structures and strategies that help people make better choices about information, some good things can happen. So, so that's really what the book is about. Uh, the, the first part of the book is to just shake us from the fiction that like, we know it all. Uh, but then when you realize that none of us do, now the question is, well, what do we need to know? And so we talk about that in the book. But then the real meat of the book is about, OK, suppose we know something that is of value to our families, our communities, our nations. Um, what would it take to, to, to get people to listen to it, to get people to think about it, to get people humming that tune as they leave the room with you? And so we delve a little bit into how human attention works. Uh, basically, here, here's, a, here's human attention in a nutshell. Think for a moment about what you believe the human capacity for attention is. Like, just imagine what you think that is. Now, I, what I want you to do is divide that by a large number, and you're closer. Uh, our brains play all kinds of tricks on us to make it seem like we can pay attention to a lot more that we can. That might seem really limiting, but when you understand how attention works, it actually changes your strategy about how you want to convey something. So sometimes you think, well, the best way to, tell, to, to uh, convince people of something is to tell a story about you. But there was a movie that came out about 10 years ago that I think best summarizes a better approach. So the title of that movie was She's Just Not That Into You, and that's life. Right? Uh, the stories that people really want to hear are stories about themselves or stories about aspirational versions of themselves or someone that they care about. So when I think about how to convey critical quality of life information, the, 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 the challenge is can I find out enough about my audience, about their core concerns, about what they think about when they wake up in the morning or go to bed at night, and can I find how to weave the information I want, that, that I want to convey into the stories that they want to hear. Um, so, so that's a big challenge today, but there are lots of organizations that have figured out how to do this. And when you do that, the, the opportunities to change quality of life for your family, your community, they're out there. The, the nice thing about today is that even though the world is chaotic, um, most people like me were never trained how to communicate effectively. Right? We're just like, just wing it, that'll work. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, it's somebody else's fault. Uh, but the nice thing is now, if we think a little bit more about how human attention actually works, there are great opportunities to break through the noise and, and to really improve the lives of others. So uh, that, that's what I do. Jennifer, I wanted to start out with you. Uh, you mentioned this idea of the, the first premise uh, of your book being uh, that people have differing views of facts. I mean, we live in a world where if, if politicians, if people disagree with a story that Natalie or I produce, we get bombarded with uh, emails or phone calls that say you're fake news. You know, that this is just, this is kind of the, the, the a fact. A lot of tweets. <laughs> how do we, uh, how does the, the world navigate into deciding what is, you know, objectively fact? What, how, do, how do we move on from fighting about, yes, this is objective truth right here? So I think that there's a couple different types of information, and it's important to disentangle them. So there are objective facts, things that we can verify but can confirm with reality. And you know, on those things, I don't think there should be too much disagreement. Uh, on those things, there should be a can consensus. Can you give us an example of what you would say that should be? Um, so things like, um, you know, how many people are in this room today, or um, what the weather is like outside. Um, I mean, so if you want to take it to its like 
most extreme point, you could say that we could disagree about that. You know, I could say it's raining and you could say it's like, no, this is mist or something like that. But, you know, so if we, if we kind of put that, those types of disagreements aside, there are um, kind of objectively true things um, like, you know, what I'm wearing today and what time I got up this morning. Like those are things that we can verify or I can verify them at least. Um, there are, then there are interpretations, interpretations of facts. And so this is where I think it gets murky. Um, this is this is where I would put lots of scientific principles. So uh, things like um, uh, vaccine safety, climate change, um, uh, you know, cancer therapy, like immunotherapy. And in this area of interpretation of data, it ranges from things that we're really really reasonably sure about because it's been replicated thousands and thousands and thousands of times, um, and things that we're not very sure about because it's maybe never been replicated or only been replicated a few times. And this is where I think a lot of the disagreements happen. They happen in this space between something that's objectively true and something that's clearly someone's opinion. In, in that area, um, in order to kind of establish what is a fact and what is not, I think we need more transparency and a better discussion about how these, um, how these interpretations come to be. So if you are familiar with how science evolves over time and you understand that process and your worldview is shaped by um, scientific principles, then understanding that um, the safety of vaccines has been established by multiple studies, that there is, um, that, that studies that say the opposite have been widely discredited, that they use fake data, that they use bad re research methods, that makes sense. If you don't live in that world, if you live in a different world, or you've never been exposed to that way of thinking about things, then that, that understanding can be really difficult. And so I think that what, what needs to happen is a wider discussion about how we get to these general understandings. And they are, these things exist in other areas too. So data about immigration is another example where there's a lot of disagreement. And that disagreement often comes from a lack of transparency about where this data came from, how we got it, what we're sure about, what we're not sure about. And so I think that having a wider conversation that includes uh, all the different data sources that we have that explains where they came from and that does it in a way that's accessible to everyone. So, you know, I, I think that a lot of this, um, the challenge of um, developing a, a, a common understanding comes from people speaking in different languages. And that's not the fault of any one person or any one group. It's the fact that, that people think about things in different ways. And to get over that, what's required is uh, a combination on both sides. So on the, the, on the behalf of, of researchers and um, people who are more technically oriented, doing a better job communicating that in a way that makes sense. You know, I talked to someone who was very skeptical about climate change and said to me, I don't believe it because I can't touch it. And that's right, you can't touch it. So how can climate scientists convey it in a way that is more tangible? <laughs> and on the, for the people consuming it, um, you know, you have to be willing to open your mind up to well, get over some of those things. Well, and that's also interesting because people can't really touch outer space, but yet there's probably consensus that it does exist, right? That well, some people have gone there. Well, so, I mean, for some people, but there's conspiracies about the moon landing, conspiracies <laughs> about everything, right? So, so I think, um, you know, we are, as human beings, we are prone to seek, to, to fall prey to false beliefs and to disinformation. And that's, that's because... Um, that's just because of the way our brain works. Uh, you know, we have all these biases in how we process information. We're swayed by um, anecdotes and experiences rather than generalizable data. We're, we're swayed by what our friends and family tell us, even when what our friends and family tell us isn't true. And those things are incredibly difficult to overcome, but there is a lot of work on this topic, trying to think about ways that we can help people to get over those biases. 
Okay, so speaking of uh, looking at something from two different perspectives or ten different perspectives, disagreeing on truth, Arthur, I feel like you would be highly qualified to come up with one of those Thanksgiving table conversation card starter kits. Can you talk about um, how people can have these conversations? And I know part of the, the title of your book is, is why people know so little and what we can do about it. So what can we do about it? Yeah, so you know, Thanksgiving is, is just around the corner. Uh, it is. And you know, it's interesting in a conversation, what, what do people need out of an interaction? So we do have this, again, fiction about how brains work. And the fiction is, first we, we think very hard about the information, and later on we think about how we feel. And that is just completely the opposite of how it works. So if you, someone, you know, right now I'm saying something that might be controversial, and what you'll notice is you feel it first, and sometimes feeling it is the, is the end of the process. I don't like this, it's threatening, it can't be right, I'm going to reject it. You're gonna keep talking, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in my mind, talk about all the reasons that you might be wrong, right? So if you're a liberal and you, and, and you watch Fox News tonight, or you're conservative, you watch MSNBC, you know, can you do it with an open mind? You're like, God, that Tucker Carlson's a creep. Right, and that's right. So you can't even hear them anymore because, it, right? So this is the reaction: is you feel it first, and if you feel threatened by it, you want to defend first, right? So it's very rare in any of our lives that when we see threatening information, that we have the capacity to sort of take a yoga breath or something like, maybe I'll actually think about what they're saying, right? So that that's that's normal. So now the question is, when Uncle Pete comes to dinner, right? Uh, how do you have a conversation? And I think that. There's a question, and is it, is there any common ground between what his core beliefs are, what gets him up every day, what he's lived his life uh, for, and what you have? If there is an intersection, that's where you can start a debate. I gave a, a talk, uh, I guess a year ago at SMU, uh, to a whole bunch of, about 250 people in the room, and I, I, I walked through the kind of the science of this, and then I had a, a young student ask me, my roommate and I, uh, we're not getting along right now, and, and I want your advice. Like, I give relationship advice, I really don't. But um, she's like, we really disagree about abortion and we can't get past it, what do we do? And you know, I said, okay, is there a way, if you care about this relationship and you think your, your roommate does too, is there something that you care about that's the same. So on something like abortion, you could be passionate about it because you really care about women and, and the plight of women and, and situations that women can be in, right, and, and aspirations of women. Or you might care about abortion because you really care about children and you're really focused on, on, on children. And, you know, is there, if, if we take, you know, what happens between conception and birth, and just for a second we set that aside and we look outside that box and say, is there a place where you might have common ground then here's what you can do, right? You can you can tell your roommate, I want to have a relationship with you. I I you know I I want to be able to talk about things. And what I'm willing to do is listen. What I'm willing to do is is listen to how you think about things. Maybe on one of these topics about women or about children, right? And but the commitment you make is to listen, without not listening, so that you think about what you're going to say to jump in, but actually listen. And then if they don't reciprocate, you've learned something. But if they do, and, 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 and you've shown a bit of generosity, which in relationships does tend to help, they might reciprocate right away. And then you've got the basis of it. And so there's still gonna be things you disagree about, but if you wanna build a relationship, now there's a thing that you agree about. Because here's the one thing in life. If we actually only had as friends people with whom we agreed on everything, none of us would have any friends, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the way to do it is try to find common ground. Now, if Uncle Pete doesn't want to play, if he just wants to over-talk you and, and things like that, you go watch the football game, 
but but I think you know there are ways to find common ground. Have you considered forming cards to <laughs> have like people download before the holidays? Well, as it happens, <laughs> as it happens on Coursera, you didn't know this. You, you set this up. <laughs> Next month on Coursera, there's a two-hour mini course about finding common ground that, that I'm leading with a bunch of students. And it will talk about how to do this. And it talks about the family dinner table. <laughs> so we have it pitched so it'll be right after the election when you're nice and pissed off. <laughs> uh, and how to get through Thanksgiving. But anyways, it's on Coursera. Where they have, it's free to anybody. You can sign up for it. It'll be available November 5th. It takes about two hours to get through. There's not a lot of homework. Uh, and it just gives you tips about not just dinner, but kind of how to, how to talk to people on the other side. Mariah, it seems like uh, a lot of people are talking about how we've in, in many ways reached an impasse, especially um, on racial issues. And there's lots, of, there's lots of division, there's lots of polarization, there's lots of people who, um, especially on the right, who would you know, say that there really isn't there really isn't a lot of common ground between us that you know we're we're moving this way and and people of color are taking our country another way what are you doing right now with the equity alliance with uh, the urban league to facilitate facilitate those discussions and make sure that people of color are part of this conversation that we're having and aren't just being tuned out by the people in power um, in many cases white people who may not understand the plight of people of color yeah so first i'll just say that I definitely don't think, and I'm biased, I guess don't think that we're at, a, at an impasse. And I also don't think that we're at a point um, in our society that at one point we haven't been before. I think we are in a, in a movement right now, you know, and, and in 10 years, maybe when we look back, we'll name it something like there was the civil rights movement. And at the time, maybe it was a name, but people were doing those things. They were in the mo moment, in the movement. Um, and maybe didn't even realize they were a part of something that was going to be so important in our country. And I think that we're in that place again now. And so it seemed like an impasse then. You know, it seemed like an impasse several other times in many different types of movements and women's movements um, and gay rights and, and all those. And it seemed like we weren't going to move forward. Um, and what history has shown us is that we find a way to move forward. Um, I think that progress is slow. I think that progress is, you know, much slower than most people would, you know, have it to be. Um, but I think that's sort of just what it is. I mean, and you mentioned the research progress. You know, you you add a bit of information a little bit at a time. You know, nobody's making breakthrough scientific discoveries usually these days. You, you add a bit at a time. And so I think that what we're doing right now with the Equity Alliance, with Urban League, with all these other groups, is we're adding a bit at a time. Um, I think that people um, generally feel angry um, they feel fed up and I think that's on both sides and I think that um, you know what we will have to do and what I think people are negotiating right now is how we can move forward on both sides that you know where people are feeling comfortable when people are feeling um, understanding from you know both sides and I think that so, so some of the things that we're doing, you know, with the Equity Alliance, we're part of um, in, in Tennessee a project called uh, the Tennessee Black Voter Project. Um, the goal of which is to register about 55,000 people as of Monday or whenever the re voter registration deadline was. Um, and so, you know, when you get people, people who have historically not voted or have voted um, intermittently, ha haven't been a part you know, sustaining the, the voter process, when you get those people registered and you get them, you know, for whatever reasons, you get them fired up to actually go to the polls and vote, then 
people making decisions will change. Um, the, 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 even if the face of those people don't change, their priorities will. If, if we have the same people in office and they see that you know 55,000 new people in Tennessee were registered to vote, you now need to answer to those people. Those people will now start to hold you accountable and your seat is no longer safe. Um, that, that's kind of the thinking that we have is that if we get enough people who have historically not voted or haven't voted um, in any kind of sustained way that um, you know, people in power, decision makers, uh, will start to get nervous. And so even if they don't change, their priorities will. Right. This state in Tennessee is, is terrible in terms of voter turnout. We rank near the bottom of the country, actually 49th. How do you get folks, I mean, you talk about it motivating people to register to vote, but how do you get folks to actually go to the polls? What, what is the motivating factor other than anger? Yeah, so um, just to piggyback, yeah, we are, Tennessee is really horrible on voter registration and voter turnout. Um, that's across the board, that's white, black, and everybody. So people are not voting, they're not registered to vote, and they're not going out to vote. Um, and so, you know, generally speaking, people don't feel motivated to action in any way unless they're, they care. Um, unless there is a reason to act, right? Is that, sorry to interrupt, but is that because they don't feel an issue connects with them or a candidate connects with them? Um, it, it could be that they don't feel a con candidate connects with them, and it also could be that even if they were to act, nothing will happen. You know, we live um, in this country, we have um, an electoral process. Your vote, um, you know, we, we like to say that every vote matters, and it, it absolutely does. Um, but those of us who understand how voting works in this country understand that every vote matters if enough of us vote, you know, if enough of us um, get, get out and vote on a, on a particular side, um, and that there are qualifications to that, that every vote matters, kinda. Um, and so, you know, when people are feeling like, oh, my vote doesn't matter, or um, that some of these issues that you know, should matter to me. And, you know, in a lot of communities, um, if the priority is, oh man, I need to get a job, I need to, you know, find child care for my children, if, you know, I need health care, all those things um, burden people and keep them from being, you know, fully involved in the civic process. Um, those are the very reasons they should be involved in the civic process, and all of us know that. But when, you know, um, if you don't have a job, um, if you don't have proper health care, you know, if you don't know where you're going to send your kids tomorrow while you have to go to work, then you are less likely, I mean a lot less likely, to then want to go vote. Um, all of these things sort of coalesce into this storm in Tennessee and other states as well where people aren't, you know, motivated to go vote for a lot of reasons. And, and what, you know, the Equity Alliance and a lot of different groups like us are, you know, want to do is to galvanize people and to make it easier. You know, Tennessee is the 40-something, maybe 47th, 43rd state to implement online registration, maybe 37th, actually. Those kinds of steps make it easier for people. There are less burdens to get to the voter registration thing. Um, you know, science bears out that when people vote together, they're more likely to go. If you, if you have a rally cry, you say, oh, on Saturday at 10 o'clock, meet me at the polling station, we're all going together, people are more likely to go to vote. And so when you start to um, implement tactics like that to make it so much easier, to make it not one less thing or one more thing to do, but one more like fun thing to do or, you know, thing that is not going to get in the way of all these other priorities in my life, then things like that, you know, help people to get out and to vote. 
I, I may be opening Pandora's box here, but what advice would the three of you give to journalists like Natalie and I in terms of you know, helping in voters be more informed. We, we get caught up a lot in writing about new ads, about attacks, about this and that, but what are the things that you think we can do to make the electorate more informed? So uh, I'm gonna give you a controversial answer. I think. Oh boy, I'm uh, ready. Informed about what? Uh, because politics covers so many things. There are things in your neighborhood. There are things in your school district. There are things you know, at your church if you're a person of faith. There are things in the state, things in the country. And it's not just the facts. It's kind of how certain things we are doing or could do affect people, right? So uh, one of the, the mistakes I think that really well-intentioned people sometimes make is I have a set of facts I want to tell people because they're really important to me, so I'm just going to blast them to everybody. And if they don't respond, it's their fault. Uh, why are they so apathetic? We are, we live in an age now where on these cell phones and, and things, we're competing, you know, if we put something online like information, we're competing with cat videos and Beyonce and football games and all this stuff. And so if what we are putting out there isn't immediately relevant to someone or they can't see how it affects their children or their future, cat videos, I don't know if you've heard, they're really funny, right? <laughs> and they're one press away. So part of what I encourage people to do is before you talk, you need to listen. Right, and you need to figure out these people that you're trying to educate, what do they need in their lives? And, and because you might be trying to sell them something that they don't really need, right? So if someone is, you know, they're in a desperate situation with their children or taking care of an elderly parent, and that's their daily existence, and you're saying, well, you need to go out and vote because of issues A, B, and C, and they're like, do you not understand that I, I have this life and I'm struggling to get through the day? And if you told me how going out and voting would help people like me get through the day, I might do it, right? So a lot of times we're trying to kind of sell people fancy shoes and what they really just need is shoes, right? And so I, I think, you know, I, if you listen first and you think about what your audience needs, then you've got a shot at conveying information that they'll listen to. Otherwise, one, you, know, you lose to cat videos. Right? So bury facts into cat videos. Put those well, out with our coverage. You know, if people like the cats, if people it, that maybe might the be cats should be communicating the facts. That's <laughs> really good. Yeah. What do, what do you guys think? What what should journalists be keeping in mind? What do we need to know about how to really help people understand what's important and and to cover what people need to know in a time like this? So you know, I I agree 100% with what what was just said. But I would also say that you know, the, helping voters cut through the noise can be really helpful. So right now, if you wanted to find out about a political candidate, there is so much information, so much negative information, so much false information. Some of it may be true information, information about things that they did 15 years ago. Um, you know, negative campaign advertising, positive campaign advertising. It's gonna be really hard to figure out what are the this candidate's actual positions, right? And so I'm sure everyone, or at least I do, um, in California get this huge book of information that I'm supposed to go through to read about all the candidates' positions and all the different propositions. We have a lot of them in California. Uh, so, you know, helping voters to get some of those facts in an easier um, way. Like, you know, here's candidate A, here's candidate B. Here are their key um, positions on the top issues that we know our audience cares about. And you can get that either by, you know, listening to them or polling or understanding their, their life situation. Um, what are the, the, the key, what are their, just boil everything down, cut through all of the noise and provide the kind of straightforward information and then let the voters kind of do the judging around the edges. And I think that that can be an effective way to um, use a platform to provide um, 
to provide effective information. Um, and also recognize that voting is actually kind of hard. Like we talk about it like it's like a five minute thing, you know, you just like, you know, pop in and pop out. But it's never really like that. You know, you have to figure out number one, um, you know, let's say you don't even spend one minute before you get there trying to figure out who to vote for. So you've you've cut out all that time. You still have to get there. When you get there, it's not a, a time, a, a costless process. In some places it can be very time consuming. You have to wait in line, you have to check in, maybe there's a problem, your ID doesn't quite match, so you have to go through that. Then you get in there and you have this long list of choices that you have to go through. And it can be intimidating to someone who's never voted, voted, for, for, voted, voted before. So what can, information can we provide to voters beforehand that make them feel empowered? That say, you're not the only one who feels this way, but you should still get out there and try it and there'll be people there who can help, help you navigate the process. We know it's time consuming. And you know, this isn't something the media can do, but what can we do to make voting easier in general? You know, can we um, give people paid time off, a couple of hours to go actually take care of it? Like, the things that get in the way of people voting um, can be that they don't feel informed or it can be that they just can't, like, you know, they have a job and it doesn't work into their day and they can't get there on that day. Um, so what can we do to provide people the support that they need to understand, number one, that, that even if it's their first time and even if it seems scary, they should still go out there and try it. Um, and number two, um, helping them to navigate some of the logistical challenges. And those are things that can be addressed by policymakers. Those are things that policymakers can do to make it easier for people to vote. Uh, so I think that those are things to keep in mind as well. Yeah, so shameless plug for the Nashville Voter Guide produced by the Equity Alliance. It is just what you mentioned. It's just taking those candidates, pairing them up together, and just saying this is what he believes, this is what she believes. Make your own decision. And you can download it. It's Fort Davidson County, but you can download it if you're here. Um, and I do want to piggyback on Arthur, giving people what they, what they want or what they need, the information that they want to hear. I think that um, the most important politics for people is local politics. So it's really important to know your, you know, your school board members, your, your um, council members, your mayors, that, that kind of thing. And people um, should be really aware, if not aware about the national politics, their local politics. And highlighting grassroots organizations, people who are in the community, I think will get people's attention. When you know, you know, if you see a news article and it's highlighting somebody that was just at your house or just at your church or just, you know, at your community event, you ding, ding, ding into that, you know, because you're like, oh, I know that person or I know that group or I know those efforts or I'm a part of it. And it makes it much more interesting because it's about you, right? And, and those are the things that we like to listen about, about us. And so um, I think that, you know, finding what people are doing in communities um, to get people to the polls and to just get people connected to issues that are important um, would you know, would go a long way. It's sometimes, it's sometimes I think hard for us reporters to swallow when, you know, we'll write these 800, 900 word stories about issues and we're continually reminded by our editors, especially ones with the digital focus, people aren't reading this. Uh, you know, maybe someone will, will scan some of your subheads and they'll read the first few paragraphs. Um, but that sometimes I know can be hard for us to swallow as well. Mariah, you bring up an interesting point though, that, I mean, there is this, this political axiom, uh, you know, that all politics is local. Well, I mean, nowadays, it seems like everybody's interested in the federal government, right? That, that Donald Trump, every day in the news cycle, uh, you've got the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which really galvanized the country, but gained a lot of attention uh, to just random people. I mean, I was talking to somebody who wouldn't otherwise be interested in watching a congressional hearing who was, you know, sucked to the television watching the Kavanaugh hearing. Uh, how do we, uh, you know, I guess get people to realize that 
it's not just the, the federal elections that matter. Uh, when we've got candidates here in Tennessee that ran for governor who are talking about things that, uh, you know, like build the wall. That's not an issue here in Tennessee. Yeah, so first, I think that um, national politics is pop culture. You know, I, I remember being in college 22 years old and like thinking about my health insurance because Barack Obama was talking about it. I mean, at no other point is a 22-year-old, you know, thinking about your health insurance. You just don't until it becomes like, you know, it's on Yahoo News, it's on your Facebook, and it's things that, you know, young kids are even are talking about because it's kind of cool now. And I think that national politics is kind of a cool thing to talk about. It's kind of a cool thing to make satire about. You know, and people did that before, but I think since Barack Obama, maybe Bush, when Kanye was talking about, you know, rappers, and it's just, you know, a lot for people. Um, it's just in your face all the time, and popular people like musicians, actors, they're, you know, way more involved, I think, now. And like I said, it's, it's pop culture now. Um, you know, tactics for how to um, get people to refocus on local politics, I'm not 100% sure. I think that, um, you know, I think grassroots groups um, are going to be probably the most effective because they are in tune with what people care about, what people are thinking about, um, <clears throat> and can develop, you know, campaigns of some sort to get them to refocus on things that matter. You know, in Tennessee, Medicaid is a big deal to me, it is anyway, um, and the ex expansion or non-expansion of it. Um, people need to be focused on that. I think it that issue ties back into national politics as well, but it is a local, it's a Tennessee, a Tennessee issue. I don't know how many people are, you know, super focused on that, but it's something that every Tennessee vo voter should be, you know, thinking about asking their elected officials about um, what's going to happen with it. Um, and I think, yeah, so the, the best answer that I have right now is for, you know, grassroots um, organizations to be you know, if, if you have a member base, if you have um, an email blast, you're sending out those kinds of um, bits of information to your members, to your email blast, to get them, you know, more informed about those issues. Any other? Yeah. 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 Well, I, first, I mean, just, Mariah, the efforts that you described, they're, they're just amazing. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's great that you're doing it. And this idea that when you are uh, work, talking with a bunch of your friends or people in your neighborhood to go and vote, you know, if you got 10 of your friends and you go out to vote, you're probably not going to make a difference in the presidential election or the Senate election, but that school board election where only two or 300 people vote. Or the state house. Or the state, well, yeah, but 10 of your friends can make a real difference. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you want to, particularly younger people, if you want to get them motivated in, uh, in politics, there's just a little math problem here. Like, you know, where, where can 10 people make a difference? But the other thing I'll say, just I think to echo, is it's really hard to compete with pop culture. And, and pop culture, I'll just say, it doesn't, pop culture, I think, gives a very skewed version of contemporary politics. Uh, even CNN, you think, you know, whatever you think of CNN, um, they're like a polarization machine. They, they every day, you know, they, they do breaking news every day. I, I can't remember what comedian told them, said this on TV, is like, yeah, congratulations, you broke it. Uh, <laughs> but they you know, have breaking news all the time. And basically, they have to focus on controversy because controversy gets ratings. That's not just on them. You know, we, you know, people will pay hundreds of dollars to watch Tom Brady throw a football on Sunday because 300 pound guys are chasing him. They like the peril, even though Tom Brady throws the same football with the same guy on Tuesday and Wednesdays, <laughs> and nobody pays to watch it at the practice. Nobody pays to watch. People like the, the turmoil, people like the challenge. So it's on all of us. 
But there are so many issues where lots of Americans care about the same thing, even self-identified liberals and self-identified conservatives. There's so many issues on which they agree. We, we can walk through an inventory, and you'll never see them on CNN. You never see them on Fox News or MSNBC because they don't bring the ratings, right? So we can't compete with the heat. But one thing that people can do, that one thing that the national campaigns and CNN and whatnot, they can't do is they can't organize and knock on your door. And they can't listen to your concerns. And they, and they can't look you in the eye and say, we can actually do something about that. And that's what local groups can do. There are actually, it's not just practice. There are scientific studies showing that there, there's a huge difference between having a campaign where you meet somebody in person at a mall, at a concert, at their house, and getting something in the mail. Because we throw most of the mail out. The mail mostly isn't about us. But if somebody can look you in the eye and they take the time to listen, that's where you can build it. So I'm not, you know, federal politics is really, really important. But, you know, if, if your job is, is to improve somebody's life today in a way that you couldn't yesterday, local organization of the type that you're doing, it, it's a great way to do it. And, and, and any, you know, any of us can do it. All of us who have the ability to come to an event like this today, you know, we all have the ability to, to be helpful to someone tomorrow. The fact that we have time to do this, that we have this interest. There's so many groups like yours and others where, you know, you can go and listen and, and build coalitions and, and do great things in communities. CNN won't put it on TV, but it's, they're still great things. I think some of it goes back to the fact that people don't really know how, de how democracy or how the government works. Like they, I think that there's a lack of understanding of what, who provides what to you. So, you know, um, is it the federal government that's filling Holes on the street? No, it's not. It's the it's the local government. You know, is it is it the is it the federal government that's making decisions about Medicare expansion? No, it's not. It's the state government. So I think that making sure that you know and, and uh, you know using local and community groups as a way to say like all these things that you count on, that's not coming from this loud noise that's over here. That's coming from these other the, these people who are working for you on a day to day basis. Um, and it's a lot easier um, at the at the local level to. Um, uh, build coalitions and at the state level too, although you know my concern is as we see this like partisanship kind of trickle down um, from um, like national news to local news and from um, federal government to state government, does it then then permeate local government as well? And so I think that everything we can do to make it so that's not the case, like keep those issues you know um, at the federal level and focus on the things that we agree at, agree on at the local level. Quick plug, uh, in about 15 minutes we're going to go and open the questions up to you guys in the audience. There's a mic over there. So think about your questions for now, but uh, Natalie, go ahead. Yeah, start thinking. Uh, a couple of things you guys said brings me to something I wanted to talk about in this panel is, is the role of moderates in politics today. Um, it's, it's not, you know, the, the centrist politicians aren't necessarily as sexy as the ones on the far right, on the far left. Uh, we are seeing, at least the narrative is, that we're seeing more polarization. We are seeing more candidates who are now being more open about very far right views running on platforms like those we're seeing on the left. Um, even a, a faction of people who would identify as democratic socialist, and that's you know causing rifts in the left. Um, in Tennessee, we are losing our governor. He you know he's finishing his second term. He's very much seen as a moderate Republican. Um, same with Senator Bob Corker. He's retiring from the Senate. That we have a we, Joel mentioned the Senate race we have right now. That's that's very tight. Um, it's you know it's very intense. But but Bob Corker was seen as someone who is you know, fairly moderate. And my question is, is what is the role of moderates in politics and government today? Is there still going to be a place for them? Has the Trump administration changed that at all? What do you guys think? 
Yeah, um, I'm not sure that the Trump administration has changed things as much as it's a product of an ongoing change. So in elections now, one of the key things is how do you get nominated? Because basically, you know, if you love third parties, all, you know, all power to you, uh, they don't win elections, right? Uh, so the way to gain office is to get one of the, the party primaries. And I think that um, non-moderate groups within the Democratic and Republican parties have just become better organized over time. And you know, if you have an unbending view, sometimes it's easier to raise money, it's easier to make ads that get a lot of attention. And so that, that's a shift. And so now if you want to run for office, there's a lot of pressure on you to leave the middle, particularly during an election, and, and go there. So, so that's a thing, all right? But I, I live in Washington, and I meet with members of Congress on a regular basis, not, not in front of cameras, just you know, they ask for advice and things of that nature. And you would, there's a couple that are on TV all the time that are just shouting things, and that's their job. Most members of Congress are actually trying to figure out how to square the circle because they, are, they care about some constituency. And you'd be surprised at how many behind closed doors are, are actually centrist, are actually able to hear the other side. Like in public, they, they, it's very hard to admit it because the extremists in your party are gonna just come after you but are trying to figure out how to do things for constituents and how to build on, this, on so many issues where the right and left agree. I mean, just a couple of these issues. Did you know that like right now, over 70% of self-identified Republicans and over 70% of self-identified Democrats want kids under 26 to stay on their parents' health insurance policies, want us to stay in NATO, right? Uh, want, are okay with treating veterans with PS, PTSD with marijuana. I mean, there are, you know, uh, all kind supportive of many things related to parents staying home with childcare. Again, there are so many of these issues, and there are a lot of members of Congress who are really wired on how do we secure the country, how do we help uh, people who are on the wrong side of, of e tran um, um, technological transitions and losing their jobs and losing their, there are so many people that are trying to work on it. It is hard to get out in public and do it, but a lot, and if you just, you know, if you wanna have faith in the process, there are people working really hard in the district to try and do this. It's just really hard to be on CNN. Why is it hard, though? Why, I mean, why can't you just come out and say, hey, yeah. I'm, I'm a moderate here, and, and I, I think this is a little too uh, partisan right now. Let's all relax, take a breath, and let's talk this issue out. Are they doomed to just be closet centrists? No, no, it's actually it's a little <laughs> bit different. What they, the way that you do it is you, is you find a moment with an issue, like you have hurricane relief, or you, have, you think about uh, the soldiers, or you think about uh, really job transitions is one where a lot of people are speaking with the same voice. Actually, one issue where people are not saying I'm a moderate, they're just working together, is criminal justice. So yes. there, there are a couple of, there's a, there's a thing called hashtag cut 50, you can look it up. And the leaders of this include Van Jones from CNN. Van Jones also a friend of Obama, a friend of Prince, like who knew Prince had friends. And Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers, right? So they're working together on this. Uh, Rand Paul and Kamala Harris are working together about bail, right? They don't come out and say they're moderates, they just appear together, they work on this legislation and so forth. So what they don't get to do is do the front end of, hey, I'm a moderate today. They just work on issues and everybody say, oh, it's really cool, let's do more of that. But it's, you know, no one's saying, oh, it's cool that they're moderate. They're just finding these issues, they're finding ways to do it, which I think just strategically is, is smart for them because they can establish the coalitions and that way they don't get hit as hard by the extremes. Plus, I think, you know, we don't see that many Congress 
congressmen or senators on television. Like there's a you know a set a, 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 you know some number of, of 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 House representatives and some number of senators who we see on television all the time. But there are a lot of them that we don't see. And you know so our attention and our opinion of of both. Of, of, uh, of the House and the Senate is formed by what we see on television or what we hear on the radio or what we read in the newspaper. But the people sucking all the air out of the system are the ones who are really far extreme. And then there's all these people in the middle um, who are uh, who, who are much more willing to work across the aisle, but they're not always getting the attention. Um, and so I think it's important to understand the extent to which the way the media environment works. And Twitter just makes it worse, right? Because the, the things that are outrageous, the things that are sensational um, on either side are the ones that get retweeted millions and millions of times. And again, this just feeds into this, this perception uh, that, um, that, that everybody in both parties is is very extreme. And if you look just on the Democratic side, you know, there's been a ton of coverage about the Democratic Socialists and, oh, the party is fracturing and it's so extreme. But then if you look at the primary um, results, I mean, there are there are a handful of cases where the extreme candidate won. Same thing on the right. There are a handful of cases where the extreme candidate won. And then there are a lot of cases where the more moderate person won. Um, and those aren't the ones that attract the news attention. So those aren't the ones that we think of when we think of this problem. And so I think it's important to recognize this, that, that the the media and the, the way that the information ecosystem works now is you know, churning and churning and churning and contributing to this problem, contributing to the, the sense in which we feel that we are really polarized, um, even, if, uh, even if there are all these issues and all these um, areas where there is so much, so, such more widespread agreement. Do you agree that Twitter is, is, even if it's a very vocal minority, is fueling outrage against moderates from both sides? It seems like, at least scrolling on my feed, you know, Democrats are are yelling if you know one of their candidates maybe didn't take as as far left of a stance on something. Same for Republicans. You know, they. It seems like there's this there's a screaming about you know they're they're selling out by yeah. not being so far right or so far left on this issue we care about. Yeah. So you know, I I don't want to um, you know bash social media because I think that social media does a lot of great things. Um, it. Um, provides a platform for minority, minority voices. It allows people to work together across lines. If you think about hashtags like um, Me Too or Black Lives Matter, it allows people to form movements. And I think that that's really power, it's a really powerful tool for that. Um, but it does have a tendency to um, amplify um, kind of negative messages or extreme messages or things that provoke outrage. Um, and so that kind of, it's kind of, it kind of is like an outrage machine. Um, I can't think of many times when I go on Twitter and I leave feeling less angry than when I went on. Um, usually I feel more angry and I, you know, I've closed the app in, in anger. So, um, so I think that it, it does that, but it does that because it, it's, it's sort of its business model is to kind of pull you in and suck you in and then you get outraged and then you look in the comments and you get more outraged and, uh, you know, and th that's kind of the business model. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that these tools are really powerful and I hope that, um, you know, in the past when we've had new technologies, like when we first had newspapers, when we first had radio, we first had television, there was a lot of concern about how these different new technologies for providing information would be integrated into our, um, into our communities and into our um, lives. And over time, um, that concern lessened as we became more used to it and it became sort of um, more manageable. And I'm, my hope is that we get to that point with social media, but right now it does feel a little out of control. Mariah, uh, Arthur mentioned the idea of criminal justice reform bringing 
people on both sides of the aisle together. We've seen that here locally. Uh, I mean, we've had some efforts in Tennessee where Republican lawmakers, Democrats will come together and they'll work on things like, uh, you know, changing the fees for getting your record expunged. How is that or is that issue motivating folks that are part of your organizations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's encouraging. If, if nothing else, it's encouraging to see people come together on things like <clears throat> things like expungement costs, um, things like bail reform, um, and things like that. I think um, that, like I said, progress is slow, and it goes incrementally. And I think that the um, types of issues that you can pick up and take forward sort of depend on the time, right? So. Um, like transit in Nashville, you know, maybe we won't try again next year. Maybe in about three to four years when people calm down, that kind of thing, we can attack it again. And I think it's like that with most issues. Um, with Medicaid um, expansion, you know, Tennessee has a history with that. We left it alone for a long, long time because it didn't seem to work out. And now I think we're back in a place where people are amenable to it. Um, people, you know, their sensibilities around it are um, positive or favorable, you know, to a certain extent. Um, and so, you know, you sort of pick your battles, you pick your timing, you, you get your strategy together, um, and then you sort of have these, you know, back office conversations that are not, you know, in, in the public's eye, and see how much progress you can make um, on an issue like that, so, yeah. I want to open it up. If anybody has questions, feel free to go over to the mic. Um, we've got a few minutes left, so. Um, probably got one right away, I guess. Um, hey, uh, this is for anyone, I guess, but Jennifer, you talked about um, wider conversations about where data comes from and how it's generalized and how that process works. And I was just wondering how we elevate experts uh, into that conversation because, you know, news anchors and celebrities and politicians are not research scientists and they're the ones that kind of take up the space in those conversations. Mm -hmm. So I think that there, you know, every problem has two sides. So on the side of, um, you know, experts and researchers. Um, so there, I mean, there are plenty of experts who love talking about their work and want, you know, want to talk about themselves all the time. Then there are many who are much more comfortable just kind of doing the work, right, and not communicating. Or they're comfortable communicating it, but only to um, their peers, and they know how to talk in that scientific language. And so I think that part of um, you know, a, a graduate education, a becoming an expert, should be understanding how do you communicate this to not just um, an academic audience, but to a popular audience? Um, and what are the platforms and the mechanisms you can use to get your, uh, your messages out? Um, and what are the ways that you need to change the, your message? Um, or not change your message, but change the way you, um, that you frame that message. So just to give you an example, you know, in the policy community, um, when, when RAND presents work, we don't present statistical tables, right? That would, that would not go over well with the policymaker audience. But if we're talking to an academic audience, then that's more effective. If we're talking to a popular audience, then we're going to take a completely different approach. So every audience should have its own message, and I think that's something that researchers can learn, as well as being honest about where they're not certain. I think that's a really important piece, too. If they're certain about everything, then it's, it's not really clear kind of where the, the uncertainty lies. If you're transparent about what, you're un, what you don't know, then that gives what you say you do know a lot more credibility because you're willing to be honest about that. Um, and then I think there needs to be a wider understanding of um, you know, what constitutes an, an expert, right? So people who are on ca these cable news shows seem to be experts about everything, right? They're on every day, and, uh, and there are certain, certain shows that have the same panelists every week, and those people seem to be experts about every topic, but that's really not possible, right? I mean, you, to be an expert, you need to kind of dig deeply, and I think that 
Um, it's going to take time. You know, people have lost faith in expertise. They've lost faith in it because they see um, scientific mistakes or misstate or you know errors as sign that experts don't know anything. When really, it's just part of the process. And this gets back to just communicating, like how science works. Like experts don't know everything. Even real experts don't know everything. Um, and understanding that they still have a lot that they can provide, but but tailoring the message appropriately, I think, is a really important piece of that that can help to restore that confidence. And just to piggyback on that, I think that you know developing relationships. You know, there are advocacy groups um, of different kinds. And in my day job, I work at Meharry Medical College, um, and we're members of the American Public Health Association. You know, we tell you know graduate students to be members of an organization like the APHA because. Um, they can help you to form, you know, messaging, right? So maybe that's not your strong point, and, and you know, maybe you do cancer research or whatever. Um, there are advocacy organizations. There are just special interest groups that can take what you've done and, you know, disseminate it to their membership bases. Can give it to interested groups who just go onto their websites. And when you have these kinds of relationships that you formed, that takes, you know, one less thing for you to have to do off your, you know, off your plate. Um, and you can rely on a different, a different, different people with different skill sets to then tell, um, give a story about your research. And it can be more effective that way because those, the, the communities that, that the groups are talking, like there's already that relationship. Exactly. So there's like two, there's a relationship between the research and the, uh, and the advocacy group and the advocacy group in the community. And so then there's not a jump. The community doesn't have to think, do I really trust this researcher? Because they're not, they're just trusting the message that's coming to them. Um, so I work with experts in a lot of fields to try and help them convey things more effectively. And one, one problem that experts have is they want to tell the whole story of how they know something, right? So if you're a, you know, if you, my background's in mathematics, like what people in math like to do is tell you about their grand theory first and then get to examples that you might care about later. But by that time you're asleep or you're looking at something else or so forth. So I ask people to kind of look back and go, look back at like what Steve Jobs did. So Steve Jobs, when he would introduce the next iPhone, he could have gone on stage because you know, he knew about the technology. He could have pulled the cover off and said, see this part here? 150 prototypes, three years, and let me, you know, $4 million. And let me tell you about how we developed this part. But instead, he went on the stage and said, look, you can talk to your mom. Hey, look, you can see the weather. Hey, look, a cat video. And people were like, I want one of those, right? You lead with the app. If you're an expert, you have to lead with the apps. And, and sometimes that gets people so motivated, they're like, can you tell me about the technology? So a lot of experts go tech first and app later. But I think if you have, an ex if you have expertise in something, you want to build a bridge first, kind of get, get people excited about the implications of what you know, and then try and put them in a situation where they ask you, well, how do you know that? And then you can talk about your technical expertise. Speaking of cat videos and effective messaging, uh, the big question is, what do we make of Taylor Swift speaking out on Tennessee politics? Uh, what, what kind of effect does a celebrity taking a stance like that have on a race? And how helpful is it to uh, encouraging people to vote to get involved in politics? Do you think that something like that is going to have uh, an important effect on young people getting out? My sense is by any means necessary. If it takes Taylor, <laughs> You know, getting out and saying, "Hey, I, you know, I endorse this candidate over the other." Um, I think the most important thing is that people, you know, feel motivated. However, it comes to go and vote. I mean, Cardi B. I don't know if you're familiar with the rapper. <laughs> she, um, you know, her first performance after giving birth to her baby, she got on stage and did a whole set on like, "Hey, y'all, voting is so important. Let's get out and do it." 
there were, I'm sure, people from like 15 to 25 in that crowd, people who are, you know, obviously 15 years are not voting, but though that group, of, that age group, not really motivated to vote. But if you see, you know, your favorite rapper, your favorite singer um, advocating for these kinds of things, then you'll at least pay more attention um, and then maybe be motivated to vote yourself. I think, you know, obviously, you know, singers or actresses, um, they, they may or may not have any expertise in a particular area. So, you know, every, every bit of information you get, you know, should be with a grain of salt, like, does she know what she's talking about? Um, but, but if it's motivating enough for you to at least be curious about it, to then go and do your own research or, you know, ask a friend to maybe talk about it, then, you know, hey, I'm all for it. <laughs> I mean, we know these people have incredible influence, right? So if you look at like Kylie Jenner, right? She posts about um, lip kits. And I mean, basically it's like lipstick, right? I mean, but it's this huge thing. So, and everyone goes out and buys it. So think it, 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 we know that it at least translates into purchasing decisions. Um, and, you know, I think it's a good point that, you know, these people may not know what they're talking about, but if they can get people thinking about elections, like thinking about, hey, there's an election, what, like, can I register to vote? You know, these are things that maybe they never even, it never even entered their worldview. So I think that, um, I think that having people talk about it and um, raise the issue can be a powerful way to get young people involved in thinking about the issue. So that's good. Now, if they're providing false information, um, you know, we, one of the big challenges in the area of vaccines is that several celebrities have come out against them and said that they're not safe. And we know that that's not what the science says. But it's really difficult because these people have the power to have this influence to get people to change their mind because they say, well, I saw Jenny McCarthy said it, you know. So I think that um, these people can have a real influence and that's good. It gets people thinking about it. But it can also have, it's a double-edged sword because it can also be negative if they are um, spreading false information or um, uh, getting people to believe, um, to do the opposite. I think the, the Taylor Swift moment was really interesting and distinctive. It's a lot different than, than a lot of other celebrities because until she spoke out last week, a lot of people didn't know what she was. I mean, she could have been a Republican, right? Dave, it, it was entirely plausible. So the fact that she not only came out and talked about voting but endorsed this candidate was interesting. And then part of it is, is Taylor Swift is, is not just a singer, right? And people know that she's very entrepreneurial and she's very savvy and she's, she's, she's a businesswoman. And I think you know, a lot of people see her, kind of like Cardi B and things like that, as sort of more than a performer. There's more depth to it. So now that there's this mystery about what she was and she comes out and she reveals this preference, a lot of these a lot of the things that people know with her kind of travel with it and give her give her voice a depth that I think most celebrities wouldn't have. So in part because it was a surprise and in part because there, there's a little bit of a backstory in, in terms of how she built it. So I think there's a lot of celebrities who could who would have who would have said the same thing and it would have flatlined I and mean, it wouldn't have the effect. Yeah. Uh, to change gears just slightly, a little bit earlier a couple of you talked hopefully about about uh, the prospects of building coalitions off areas of common ground and that's a way to bring people that are polarized uh, together to work for things uh, to move to the other end in a little bit less hopeful mode uh, in an age where we have a fragmentation of media where we we don't have three networks and two newspapers in town for people to get their news from. But 
people still seem to be motivated by stories and symbols. And like the 16 election, we had uh, Stronger Together and we had Mega. And people trust or don't trust facts with how they fit into those stories. Um, how do you move stories with the small ball of building coalitions? Or does, if you want to move forward, you need to get people talking about how their conflicting stories interact and their way of looking at facts on climate change. Uh, uh, they need to have something challenging that uh, or something that at least gets them to talk about it and think about it. Arthur, this seems like you. Yeah, well, um, let's talk about climate, because this is a thing where I think that a lot of really well-intentioned people uh, go out in public and say something counterproductive, right? So I'm going to say a series of things, and they're all true, but you might not like some of them, OK? So first, uh, there's a lot of data that the climate is changing and that it's warming. There are many scientific models suggesting that this is associated with the in, uh, increased rates of CO2 in the atmosphere. And all of the data that we've seen in most of the models that exist uh, explain the correlation that increased industrial activity should have, would have led to these increases in CO2, could have, should have led to the changes in weather that we're seeing. Okay? So these are all things on which most scientists agree. Now here's another question. Is this good or bad? Science can't answer that question until we bring in morality or ethics, right? So here's one thing that we have no data on. We don't know if the Earth cares whether people live in New Orleans or Jacksonville. Like, we have no scientific data on that, right? One could imagine a version of the Earth like, look, the reason I put New Orleans under sea level is because I didn't want people to live there, right? <laughs> I mean, we, the point is, even though that's full, we have no scientific data on that. When we have a moral or ethical idea and say, well, wait a minute, there are some things that we care about, and the changing weather affects those things that we care about, and that's why we should change care about the weather, now science can be helpful again, because science can say, okay, if you care about where people live, if you care about the health of people in developing countries, in the third world, of people who live near coast and, and cannot move, Right? Uh, science can tell you how to do that. But a lot of people skip that part. They say, no, 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 the science tells us it's bad. The sci science can't do that on its own. All science is is a way to try and figure out what's consistent with evidence and what isn't. Right? When you mix morality and ethics, science can tell you what to do. But without, the, and so many people just go out and say, well, you're just rejecting the science. And some people reject the science. But some people are skipping over the fact that I'm going to hide in my scientific argument a whole bunch of moral and ethical things about what I care about. Like, why wouldn't you talk about that? Why wouldn't you say, I actually care about children? I actually care about, you know, communities. I actually care about developing countries. There's an organization that I've worked with called Climate Central. You can look it up. And, and what they've been very successful at doing is, is building human scale narratives that are inserted into your weather forecasts, right? That are inserted when the climate, uh, when the Paris climate accords were going. You may have seen these videos of, of flyovers of cities and what they would look like oh, un, under different levels of sea, uh, with, with the sea level rising. They made those. The idea is trying to take the story of climate change and put it at a human scale. And then if you see things you care about being threatened, you're like, I don't want that to happen. 
But the, when we think about messaging, I think that a lot of people from my world, science, we don't realize that we're making a moral and ethical claim. And as some people say, I think you're, you're, you're talking about more than science, and that reduces our credibility. But if we could say, here's what the science says, here are my moral and ethical beliefs, and they could be informed by society, they could be informed by my faith, whatever it is. And when I put these together, this is why I come here, I think they'd be a lot better at coalition building. So I will say, you know, I think some of it's on the scientists. We have time for about one more question. You asked a, a point that I thought was interesting, though, about fragmented media and towns that don't have two newspapers anymore. I mean, uh, frequently I get calls that say, hey, you work at the liberal paper, because that's what the Tennessean was, right? Historically, it was the, the left paper and the banner here in town was the conservative paper. I also worked in Charleston, West Virginia, which was the same exact thing. Went through a merger. I worked for the conservative paper there. So when people call and they ask, what are you writing for? Are you the, the liberal reporter? Or are you the conservative reporter? I don't like to think about it in either way. I think I take the same facts if I worked at a liberal or a conservative paper and just put it down the middle. I, I take what one side says, what another side says, and I sometimes, you know, well, they'll conflict. We'll try and fact check both sides. But, you know, frankly, I think our role as media and I think we do this a lot better in the local media than on the national level. I think we are able to uh, not necessarily just try and stir up things and, and, and generate and throw bombs at one another or different sides. I think it's our job as a reporter to ask everybody skeptically about information. I take every Republican I ever interview and I hold them to the same level of accountability as a Democrat. And so that's why I think you know, yeah, it's, it's it's a shame that we only have one paper in town, but that's that's newspapers in America nowadays, so. If we don't have any more questions to close, I'm gonna ask you all, uh, if you were standing on a stage, let's say in this case, it's the stage that is iTunes, because you can find our podcast there, um, and you could tell everyone one thing to go out and do this week, next week, that would improve uh, political discourse, voter engagement, uh, just just the political atmosphere in general in our country, what would that one thing be that you could tell them to do that's practical? We'll start with Arthur and move down the line. I think the, the best things, if we want somebody, like my view is don't wait till tomorrow, do it right now. And what you can do right now, anybody that has the ability to listen to a podcast on iTunes has the ability to go it, join a group like Mariah's, go to a senior citizen center, go to a veteran center, and, and you can be helpful, you can improve somebody's quality of life tomorrow. And in so doing that, you learn about people who aren't like you. And if you wanna build a political movement, it can't just be about you, it's how you relate to the lives of others. Going out in the community, serving others, I think is a great way to learn the foundations of what you need to know to be effective the day after. So get out of your house, get involved with a group or volunteer or something like that, okay. Yeah, mine is um, really similar and it is to Think of activism as small acts that you do, you know, sort of as your everyday thing and not as, you know, an MLK, you know, sort of I am out here in the world fighting for the good fight, you know. Think of activism as um, on Tuesday, I'm going to speak to the receptionist who I don't have a good relationship with and I'm gonna ask her how she's doing and then, you know, maybe next Tuesday I'll ask her if she got her hair done. You know, and then just to just to be really intentional about who you're building relationships with um, so that um, your worldview uh, 
gets bigger, basically, so that you know your perspectives on people's lives and their what they, they care about um, sort of come in line with what you care about as well. Um, and that is activism. I mean, that is you being just sister soldier, um, going out and doing that, and sort of how I do it too, because I'm not a you know, bold, fearless type of person. Naturally, I'm just kind of like, hey, hey. And so, um, if you are too, then then activism is that. It's just you know, expanding your worldview. So push yourself to build relationships with people you may not otherwise be inclined to do so. Good. Yes. Mine would be to challenge your own biases. Um, we all have biases, even when we like to think that we are right all the time. Um, our, our attitudes and beliefs about almost everything are shaped by things going back to um, how we were taught in elementary school. Um, and I think that a lot of times the disagreements and the hostility and the anger is an inability to take to step outside of your own view and see the other person's view or see the other side's view and try to understand why they have that view and where they're coming from. And it's not always easy and it's definitely not always fun, but I think that it helps then to see that, um, you know, these other people, they're not, um, they're not the other. They're just people who have this different interpretation of how things fit together and they've had this different set of experiences that is shaping um, what they believe. And you know, there's lots of opportunities to do this. Like, if you're going to watch cable news, watch CNN and Fox News. Watch them both. Um, if you're going to read the newspaper, um, read multiple newspapers. Check out the story from multiple sides. And I think that includes challenging your own like pre the pre-held beliefs. Are the pre-held beliefs that you had really based on facts and data, or have you, as Arthur said, inserted uh, um, moral and ethical um, judgments into those um, beliefs? And that doesn't mean that you have to change them. It just means to understand like, what of your own beliefs is actually based on fact, and what comes from your own worldview, and apply that to other people as well. And I think that relates to what Mariah said in terms of just thinking um, uh, you know, build, building relationships and thinking about how relationships exist even where you thought they might not have. With that, I want to thank our panel for being here and, and having this uh, wonderful conversation. Thanks the audience for listening. And uh, if you guys want to listen to more of Natalie and I podcast, it's at Grand Divisions, uh, Tennessee Politics Podcast. Uh, stay tuned. We've got more to come. And, and check out their work and, and Mariah's work as well. So thanks again. Great. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.